If you are new with us, my name is Alex. I'm the pastor of Cascades. And like Joe mentioned this morning, our heartbeat is to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus and his way. I wonder if you've ever been um, pushed to do something that you knew you needed to do but were afraid of doing. Uh, my son, Isaiah, yesterday we've been doing the swimming lessons at uh, Bonzer Community uh, Center there. And um, he's like me, so he's a little bit cautious. And he doesn't totally know how to swim yet. But one of the things that he was, uh, was being pushed to do yesterday was jump off of the little launch pad into the pool. And uh, it was really hard for him. So I had to give him uh, some incentives. Incentives being, uh, hey, if you do one jump, I'll give you my Timbits. If you do two jumps, I'll give you a popsicle, these Melonia mango popsicles that are, like, delicious, and he loves them, right? So even with those incentives, it was difficult. Yeah, he knew he wanted to. It was just really hard for him. He was afraid of, you know, if you've never jumped into the water from a high uh, height, it's kind of scary. And you're a five-year-old, right? Well, some of us experience that even when we're not five, and may, it might not be about swimming, but it might be something else. See, as Jesus calls his people to go out into the world as heralds of a new uh, way of being human that he is establishing, it can be scary. It can be difficult. To be a follower of Jesus is to be this outward-focused agent of the kingdom, inviting people to know Jesus and embrace his way. And yet, as we looked at last week, if you prioritize Jesus and his way of relating to other people, you will experience suffering. That's what the last beatitude was all about. And our passage today is kind of like this mother bird pushing the, the young birds out of their nest, pushing them out to fly. And it's scary, but here's the thing. Flying is central to being a bird. It's who they are. Birds fly. They don't... Uh, they don't, you know, run. They don't kind of just like, glide through the air. They don't sprint. They fly. That's what birds do. And Jesus is doing something similar with all of his people. He makes this declaration about who we are, and then he pushes us out. So the big idea this morning is a very simple idea, but it is that you exist for the world. Disciples of Jesus exist for the good of the world. That's what he, Jesus is talking about when he uses these two pictures of salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt and light, they communicate the same idea, that you exist for the world. For what purpose? What purpose? You exist for the world, but for what? Well, I think as we begin to look closer at salt and light, we begin to discover something very uh, and deeply encouraging, but also concerning and challenging. So let's look at you are the salt of the earth. Salt had many different uses in the ancient world. Salt, one, was a preservative. It slowed, um, uh, in a world with no uh, refrigeration, it slowed the decay of meat or fish, and so it would be rubbed into uh, these types of uh, different meats and things. And Jesus, in one sense, might be saying that he wants us to have a, um, a slowing effect on the moral decay of our fallen world. Salt was also a seasoning, something you'd add on to, say, bread or something else. Jesus wants us to be seasoning. 
an enriching flavor to this world through our presence. It was also used as a fertilizer when applied to some soils. So Jesus maybe wanted his disciples to enhance the growth of God's work in our world. And fourth, it was used as a means of enacting a lasting covenant. In a covenant ceremony, a covenant was basically a, a formal agreement between two different people or groups of people in terms of how they would interact with one another. And salt would be used to enact that covenant, that agreement between two parties. And one of the fun fundamental ideas of salt is this idea of permanence then. And so there's these different uses for salt. And if there were so many different uses, which one was Jesus talking about? Well, common interpretation is that Jesus is not talking about one specific use, but actually talking about its broad and varied use because salt is vital to everyday life. Now, up until this point in the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we get this passage, Jesus has started with this picture of the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are him outlining of what happens to people when they come into contact with him. And now we're getting this picture of, of this next part here. You're salt, you're the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth because you've come into contact with me, he says. You matter and your presence is necessary in our world. You exist for the good of the world. And the life you have in me is vital for persevering, for, se uh, for preserving, for seasoning, fertilizing. This world and the different people you will meet and different situations you will encounter. But then Jesus says something kind of weird, right? He says, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, what's weird about this is salt cannot lose its saltiness. If anybody here is a chemistry or, or science major, I am not, but I know this. Salt is a sodium chloride. It's a stable compound. It doesn't change. It doesn't lose its saltiness. But Jesus isn't talking like that. Right? He's using these different metaphors to make sense of something. And around this time, the time of Jesus, there was this proverb that rabbis uh, would use when talking about things that were impossible. And one potential interpretation is that Jesus is actually referencing this proverb. This is how this proverb went. It said, can a mule have children? Can salt lose its flavor? Right? It's a rhetorical uh, 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 effect that he's trying to have here. No, a mule cannot have children. It's sterile. And salt, of course, cannot lose its flavor. So then, what is Jesus saying here? What is he trying to get at? He's saying that if you are my disciple, it is impossible to lose your saltiness. You can't lose it. It's something that I give to you as a result of coming to me. True disciples cannot lose what made them disciples. What makes you a disciple of Jesus? It's this decision to trust and follow Jesus. You've heard his invitation come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And you've actually responded and said, I'm going to follow you. He's done something in you. He's changed you and still is changing you. You're different. There's something that has happened internally that is beginning to have an effect externally upon yourself and on others. And so this is deeply comforting. It's comforting because it, as Jesus' disciples... Your effectiveness is not something that is totally dependent on you. It's something that Jesus actually brings about in your life. 
He doesn't say you should be salt. You need to be salt. He says you are salt. It's who you are. It's part of your identity. His kingdom has come and is at work in your life. So this is comforting, but it's also a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call because it means you can't really fake this life. You can't pretend to follow Jesus. It means eventually you will be exposed if you want to fake and pretend to live this life. It's not how it works. Salt is salt, and it doesn't stop being salt. But he also says you are the light of the world. And in the Old Testament, light is connected to several overlapping ideas, including instruction or teaching, revelation, righteousness, or being rightly related, and God's presence. It's also used to describe freedom, wholeness, and the life that God brings. And so when people would talk about light in the Bible, these were some of the ideas that they would think about. But Jesus goes on to expand this and explain. He says, A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and, give, and it gives light to everyone in the house. A town on a hill can't be hidden. There's no way to hide. Towns on a hill weren't meant to be hidden. That wasn't the goal. They were, being on a hill made it a lot easier to defend yourself. So you could see it in the daytime just by looking down the horizon. You would see this town on a hill. But in the evening and in the night, you would see the glow of light reflecting off of walls and out of the rooms in the town. Now, in the ancient world, there was no electricity. There was no way to charge your phone. There was no wide up, uh, you know, emergency flashlights for those of you who still remember those. There were no electrical cars. This was like camping, except you didn't have any solar panels or uh, batteries. You were just roughing it permanently. Now, if you wanted to be able to see at night, what would you do? You needed a lamp. Back then, they were like these little jar-like figures that carried oil within them. And they had a spout on one end with a wick of um, cotton or some kind of uh, like reed or something else. And the lamp itself was pretty small. So people, if they put it down on the floor, it wouldn't give them very much light. What they would do is put it on a lampstand and raise it up. And because in Jesus' day, most people lived in a single room home, that one lamp was enough to light the whole house. That's what Jesus is communicating here. Now, when he talks about the bowl, the only reason you ever put a lamp under a bowl was so that you would extinguish the lamp. That's the way you would do it. Put the bowl on, lamp gets extinguished. So Jesus is saying, look, you can't, you can't put a, light a lamp or a light under this bowl and have it shine. That's not how it works. No one does that. If you want it to be lit, you don't do that. So what's going on here? There's these different ideas that people have about light. Now Jesus is beginning to talk about these more like practical pictures. Well, I think as I can see it, Jesus is doing two things here. One is he's saying something about himself. And second, he's actually saying something about others. Let's talk about himself first. See, light, as I mentioned, in the Bible talks about, refers to his teaching, his instruction, revelation, righteousness, God's presence. And in the Old Testament, there's this one book, this prophet Isaiah wrote, and over and over again, Isaiah talks about light. And I think if we're going to understand what Jesus is talking about here, you've got to go to this passage, Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42, God is speaking to, uh, to his spirit-filled servant, the Messiah. 
And this is what he says to him in Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners of the, from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. If you're going to make sense of what Jesus is doing and talking about on the Sermon on the Mount— you got to understand Isaiah 42. What immediately follows this, this verse in verses 9 and 10 is God saying, I'm doing a new thing, that the old is passing away, and there's this new era that is dawning. And that's why, if you've been around for a little bit or you know your Bibles, right before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew actually says and men mentions Isaiah when he says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Matthew gets it. Matthew's saying, look, the light is Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. And this is why Jesus himself will say, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. John gets it. And so he literally starts off his whole story and portrait of who Jesus is saying that Jesus is the light that enlightens all people. That Jesus, anyone who believes in him, won't be in darkness, but will walk in the light. Because Jesus is the great light that's come to us. But he's also saying something about who we are. Because you'll notice in this, he doesn't say, I am the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. It's impossible to hide a light. Just as it's impossible to get saltless salt. It's not possible. You can't. And if you are my disciple, it is impossible not to give light to everyone in your house, in the room, in the world. Jesus says, what is true of me will become true of you because you have attached yourself to me. And the reason Jesus can give us this identity is because he intends to make us like himself. He's the light of the world. You are the light of the world, not you should be the light of the world, not maybe one day you could be the light of the world, you are the light of the world by virtue of being with me. Because you've come into contact with me, you are the light of the world. And so this means every follower of Jesus has a prophetic calling. Now, some of you are like, prophetic calling, what does that mean? We have a calling to announce a new way of being human that has arrived in Jesus, a way of relating to God and to other people as modeled by Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world, and he is making us his light in our world. We're to be heralds or messengers of it. You and I are salt and light because he is making us new. Now, here's why you and I need to know this. Our fears inhibit us from becoming who he created and redeemed us to be, people who think and speak and act like him. And you can't understand the salt of the earth and the light of the world without knowing what Jesus said right before this. He has just finished telling his followers that if you follow him and when you follow him and make his way of relating to other people a way of mercy, of grace, of peacemaking, of comforting, you will be misunderstood. You will be criticized when you follow him to that redemptive edge we talked about last week you will be mistreated and rejected. You'll suffer. And now he's saying, look, do not shy away from this. 
Because if you're my disciple, you cannot help but be light and salt. This is Jesus pushing us out of that nest and saying, fly, go. This is who you are. Frederick Dale Bruner, he says, disciples who bring the Messiah into the world are the ones who uh, most preserve, not pressure, purify, flavor, and convict societies in history. Salt doesn't exist for itself. Christians should not exist for themselves. He'll go on to talk about how salt that is one centimeter away from what it, where it's supposed to be is useless. It doesn't do what it's meant to do. And that should be us. That's who we are. It's not should, it's who we are. We are salt of the earth. You don't exist for yourself. You, don't, you exist for the good of our world. Jesus is like, I'm, you see the brokenness in our world. We read about it, and I'm not taking, it, taking you out of this world. I'm actually sending you into it. So don't hide. Don't pursue comfort. Don't just stay concerned without actually engaging in the world. Don't remain cautious. Go. It's who you are. You are light. You are salt. You exist for the good of the world. So, what does that mean for you and I? And I think it means we go out. We go out into our worlds. Each of us have different spheres of influence, and some more than others, and some of it just depends on our season of life. But one of the thoughts I had was, what if we believed and lived this out in our lives? And if we really believe that we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and we live this out in our spheres of influence, in those relationships and places that you and I actually regularly spend time in and, and amongst. And as I was thinking about this, there were four places. There's definitely more, but I just thought four that are pretty common for all of us. Not all of us are going to be politicians. Not all of us are, you know, going to be uh, running really large businesses. But I think these four, all of us have some involvement in. So let's look at this first one, your home. Your home with your family or your roommates. Let me ask some questions. And as I ask them, just spend time thinking about how you might answer them. Husbands and wives, what would your marriage look like if you were salt and light to your spouse? What would it, what would it look like? I think you'd be united. You would relate to one another the way Jesus relates to you. You would be deeply interested in being rightly related to one another. It would matter to you. You wouldn't be okay with living in conflict not having resolved the things that have gone on that week. You would not be distracted. You would be present physically, emotionally, spiritually. You would forgive and you would receive forgiveness. You would be all in. Parents, what would it look like if you were salt and light to your kids? When it, I think it would look like when your toddler is tantruming, and this one hits close to home constantly waking up in the night, pushing boundaries like a good three-year-old does, you would remember that you've been there too. That like Jesus, you would help them find words for their feelings. You would be present with them. 
while being firm, you would teach them that perfection is not a precondition of your love. Because that's not how Jesus is with us. Our homes, if we live this, would be places where gospel values of grace, hospitality, generosity would be expressed to our family, but also to our neighbors and guests alike. And it would not be a show. It would not be pretend. Be real. I think in our careers, whether that be school or work, the question I would ask is, what would it look like to slow the moral decay of our fallen world? I think it would mean instead of gossiping about that one person who is underperforming like everyone else is, not only do you not join in, but you actually choose to bless that person by praying for them. You socialize with them even though everyone else is avoiding them. You see their humanity. It would look like working hard not to be noticed by your superior or your coworkers or be praised by others, but because you actually believe the way in which you work can be an act of worship to Jesus. Online. Every single one of us, one of, like probably the, the, I don't think it's a good thing, but the grand majority of us, one of, one of the first things we reach for when we wake up. Our phones. It's also our alarm for some of us, right? And for some of us, we just live on it. What would it look like to be rightly related to Jesus and others online? I think one of the things is we wouldn't live online. We would actually have limits. It would mean instead of contributing to a culture of judgment, lazy research, angry arguments, you are generous with your grace towards others. You don't know all the details, but you choose to give people the benefit of the doubt. You are actually quick to listen, not to judge. You ask questions. You give time to study. And when others go low, you actually choose to respond with mercy, giving them what they do not deserve. You bring all of your emotions that you feel as a result of the different ideas, images, and arguments that you see to Jesus, and he actually leads you through them. It's a fundamentally different way of engaging online because of who you are. You are light and you are earth. Not should be, could be, it's, it's who you are, Jesus says, because you've come to me. And then I think the church is the fourth one. What would it look like to be a community of salt and light? We preach Jesus crucified. Our king is a crucified king. We believe that the image of true power and love that is Jesus, and that the way for humanity is the way of Jesus. And so we practice his way. We follow him to his redemptive edge, taking the criticism and any suffering that comes with that step. We would actually confess our sin to one another. We wouldn't be pretending that we're all good and everything's okay. We would actually be talking about our failures and praying for one another. We would hunger and thirst for Jesus to be present among us. 
we would hunger and thirst to be rightly related to him and to one another. We wouldn't be okay with those grievances that we're like, oh, it's whatever, and then we like get bitter about it later. We would grieve for our own sin and the injustice in our world. We would call out evil and injustice in our city, in our nation, and around the world. And it would not align with a particular political party. So you'd end up pissing off both. Because your priority is not to please those, but actually to, to be rightly related to him. And his heart is for justice. We don't just grieve injustice or talk about what we think. No, we, we think and we act and resist that injustice and generally, generously and sacrificially give our time, treasure, talents, to make our world a more just and peaceful world. And this is why just a few months ago, Cascades, some of you may have thought, hey, this is a little bit too much, Alex, but uh, what's going on? Like, why are we uh, you know, raising funds for these different groups of people, refugees or BC flood victims or homeless or this prayer organization? It just feels like it's too much. No, we already raised a bunch of, uh, of money for uh, the downstairs ministry room. It comes back to who Jesus says we are. We are salt and light. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the good of the world. And so that's going to cost us our time, our money, our energy. But it's because we don't live for ourselves. And so here's why we need to do this, why we need to work through these different questions. Embracing who Jesus says we are. It's because insular and selfish Christians are those who have actually forgotten who they are. They've lost sight of what Jesus has said to us. When Christians become insular and focused on their comfort, their preference, on themselves and their own community, they are forgetting who they are. And let me just say, I'm guilty of this. So here's confession time, okay? Yesterday we were visiting our family in Poco, and... Uh, uh, this area where, where our, one of our family members lives, uh, it's got a bunch of construction going on. And uh, there were all these dump trucks that were like parking and blocking a bunch of the like residential streets where people could park, right? And so um, I was walking to uh, our car to get uh, some sunglasses because it's been amazing how beautiful and sunny it's been. And I actually was able to wear sunglasses. I wanted to go get them. And as I walked there, there's this truck driver there, and he's, like, honking at me. And I'm, like, I, I wasn't sure if he was honking at me or if he was, you know, sometimes the truck drivers just do the honk to warn people when they're coming through. That's what I thought might have been, but he kept doing it. So I, I turn around, and I'm, like, I see he's, he's saying something, but I can't hear what he's saying. And so I yell at him. <laughs> I'm, like, what? And, um, and his truck is so loud, he can't hear me, so he hops out of his truck. And now I'm kind of annoyed. I just wanted to grab my sunglasses. I wanted to go in, go back, and just be in the backyard and hang out with everybody. He comes up to me, and he wants me to move our truck, or our, our car. And um, where Lindsay had parked, there was this cone, like, right there. Uh, we saw the cone. We left space for the cone. We didn't move the cone. So I looked at it, and I'm like, we parked behind the cone. Don't you have enough space? 
And he's like, well, no, look how big my truck is. I'm like, well, I never moved your cone. My wife didn't move it, right? And um, so he's like, I'm like, you know what, whatever, I'll move it. Then he's like, do you know who drives the old car behind you? I'm like, you need to move that one too? <sighs> Lucky for him, it was my in-laws, so go get them. And the one behind them was my uh, brother-in-law. And so, so we move move these three vehicles for this guy, right? And then I, like, I start walking back to uh, the backyard, and I'm like, man, I got so much jerk. I was being, like, totally unnecessarily difficult with this guy for no good reason, just because he disturbed me on my Saturday. <laughs> like, man. And as I, I, as I, as I kept thinking through him, I kind of just came to my senses, and I'm like, this guy's just trying to do his job on a Saturday. That's it. He's trying to do his job. And someone must have moved the cone, and we didn't know that. And so we just parked where, where we thought it was okay, but actually it wasn't okay. Someone had just didn't, didn't like it, and we didn't know that. But I didn't add anything to his day with my words. I didn't affirm him. I didn't add any flavor through my presence. If anything, I probably left a bad taste in his mouth. I wasn't thinking of him. I was only thinking about myself and how his request was interfering with my day. I totally lost sight of who Jesus says I am. I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. So truck driver, if you're listening somehow, I'm sorry for being a jerk. That's not the way of Jesus. And I got it wrong. I forgot who he calls me to be, who he says I am. And here's the thing. Being a follower of Jesus is learning to constantly turn back to Jesus and become who he says we are. Over and over and over again, because we get it wrong daily with our spouses, with our roommates, with our children, with our coworkers, our classmates, with people online that we don't even know. We get it wrong. And daily, we have an opportunity and a calling to actually turn back to him and follow him. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the good of others. And so I don't know where you are at this week. Maybe you've wondered, Lord, am I even having an impact in this world? Jesus says, be encouraged. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Because you're with me, you'll, you'll shine. You will preserve. You will slow moral decay. You will decay. You will fertilize and enrich people's lives through your presence, your words, and your lifestyle. But maybe you're a little more like me. And you're like, actually, you need to turn back and embrace the identity that he came and died to give you. Salt. Light. Not blandness. Not darkness. And wherever you are, one of the beautiful things 